So, it being the first week of the month, uh, this is our evening where all of us create the Dharma talk. And um, I focus on doing, uh, taking your questions this evening. So what's on your mind? Anything that came up during the sit or other things happening in your practice? Things you wonder about the teachings. You're all so peaceful. Mm -hmm. I like the way my Buddhist practice synthesizes and enhances my Christian background. It gives me more specific tools to deal with the life around me and it takes a little pressure off old Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to have two major figures in your corner, huh? That's an interesting comment. So what what drew you to Buddhist practice coming from a Christian background? I met a Buddhist when I started teaching about 25 years ago. He was a colleague of mine. Got me started, and I've been chipping away at it ever since. You mentioned that certain tools are useful. What has been the most useful, or some of the things that are useful? Stillness and self-reflection. Uh-huh, yeah. There are interesting parallels between meditation and prayer, actually. We don't do a lot of explicit prayer in this branch of Buddhism, but it is um, much more prominent in other branches, particularly Tibetan Buddhism. And I've always felt that, um, I don't know what always, but I've come to feel that there's something lost without a devotional component in some ways, or that there's an enhancement when there's a devotional component to practice. But that could be because we have so little of it in our culture. It just adds a little juice. So that's one thing that comes to mind for me from hearing your comment, where I find elements from other, at least other strands of Buddhism to be enhancing 
É aquele. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Brahmaviharas bring in uh, an element of joy to practice that may not be there with dry insight practice. Um, and they have various effects, but that's somewhat what you were aiming toward. And they do moisten or, um, yeah, somehow uh, bring in that extra flavor practice. The Buddha talks about different um, paths also, and it's not like everybody's going to need all the different elements that he describes, but um, he does describe paths where a person does some regular mindfulness or even concentration practice for a while, and then at some point uh, they need uh, to bring in the Brahmaviharas in order to, for something to, I, th- I would say something to integrate, although the Buddha doesn't say that. And then from there, they can progress on farther. Um, and there are other people that don't do that quite so much, so you don't need to feel like that's something to force, but it can be that if it feels like your practice is stagnating or is moving toward wanting a change that it's fine to start actually doing a different practice and it may be that approaching through a different lens like that will get you know help break up the next obstacle we're untangling a big tangle <laughs> in the heart and the mind and um, we need different tools at different times I find that um, there's um, uh, struggling a little bit, uh, and there's this expectation I have that if I sit, you know, there's this pressure to feel better, you know, in the back of my mind. And I could say physically it feels like, you know, some kind of rock, and it's, you know, the breath is very shallow, and 
the back of my mind is it's, it's thinking, uh, you know, something wrong, it's not going through, um, and there's this doubt, you know, and such a Yeah, so you've noticed at least that there is this expectation there. Some people don't perceive that they have an expectation coming to practice, so that's already a benefit that you can see it. But um, it's true that having expectations or practicing in order to achieve something uh, often isn't very effective, as you found. Um, or it brings in some added and unnecessary pressure in some way. And usually what we think we need to achieve is, is to feel better or to be happy or to be calm or something, you know, some positive thing that we want in some way. But when we sit there looking at our watch, <laughs> metaphorically in our heart, um, it actually has kind of a dampening effect on whether we can and bring that about, and then that can become the breeding ground for doubt, for example, or for uh, other uh, factors that are not so helpful. So in, in there are a number of ways to approach that situation. Being mindful of it is already a beginning, and you know, voicing a question about it shows that there's a a fair amount of interaction with the state already. Um, but it might be interesting to look at the part of the heart that wants that ease or that joy or the happiness and you know, kind of um, address that more directly instead of addressing it by saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you that happiness. Where is it? And I can deliver that and that part will relax. It might be that um, that part in and of itself is what needs the attention. And so um, actually feeling in the body, what is that longing for happiness that I have? Or what is that, what is missing? What do I think is missing that's going to be solved by having this happiness? You know, where is that coming from? And actually feeling in the body where that is, we may find there's some particular region of tension. We may be able to get more intimate with that wish. In a way, it's a perfectly valid wish for happiness. And that's very normal for a human. Um, but we may not know exactly who it is that's asking or why or what that feels like. And sitting on the cushion is a good opportunity to meet those parts of ourselves that are that feel that the present moment is not adequate or that feel that something is missing or that yeah that are longing in some way. I think the longing is a very important part of our practice, actually. And that uh, trying to trying to too quickly solve it. <laughs> um, we may not find the deepest path that we could find. 
So I don't know if that begins to address what you had, but that's what came to mind. How is it landing now? Is there more? I do feel my body did relax a little more, which I wasn't really able to do in 45 minutes, which is so I think verbalizing mm-hmm. really helped a lot. And I just just seemed how, you know, and what I could learn is also clearing out that I'm taking a minute before the practice to clear expectations. You know, and how I was approaching it almost like medication, you know, that if I take this you know, medication all naturally, all of a sudden, something that, whatever the feeling is, I can't dissolve. Yeah. It disappears. But just knowing that, that it doesn't necessarily work that way, is is healing, is refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you are here for a reason, and we can expect results eventually from meditation. If nothing happens after 10 or 20 or 30 years, why would we be doing this? So, um, but within a given session, maybe we wouldn't expect that. Actually, I have a nice quote about this. We're still working on these lights, as you can tell. (laughs) So when a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice looks at the handle of his ads, he sees the impressions of his fingers and thumb, but he does not know so much of the ads as handle has been worn away today, so much yesterday, so much earlier. But when it has worn away, the knowledge occurs to him that it has worn away. So, too, when one dwells devoted to cultivation, even though no such knowledge occurs in one, so much of the influxes have been worn away today, so much yesterday, so much earlier. Yet, when they are worn away, the knowledge occurs to one that they have been worn away. And that word influxes just means, it has a specific meaning, but it basically means the things that torment our mind. And so it's like they are getting worn away by having mindfulness, by doing the practice. Uh, They actually are, sort of like the handle. You know, if I pick up the striker and I ring this bell for 8,000 days in a row, it's going to have the impression of my hand in the handle. Um, But I can't say on a given day how many molecules were worn away. So I think it's a nice analogy. I don't think we have to wait as long as it takes the handle to wear away for some things, but for some things we do. That's why we practice for a long time. You don't know when any given thing is going to fall away. But I have a lot of trust from my own practice that there is a wearing away process over time. So I hope that as we see that working on ourselves, um, we'll have the that trust. Another analogy that's sometimes made is cutting it down a tree, and it's going to fall on the 99th swing of the axe, and when you're on swing number 42, it doesn't seem like anything's happening, right? But if we just persist until 99, and we don't really know what the number is. sort of a related question following on about um, cycles of practice. Mm. So I um, 
lately I've been having a thing where I seem to be going through these cycles about every three to four weeks where um, my primary practice is a mindfulness of breathing, uh, sort of cultivating both concentration and insight. Those are the intentions. And when I'm on the sort of what I call the good <laughs> side of the cycle, um, I'm getting very, you know, still um, lots, you know, can see like little movements of mind and stuff very clearly. You know, in everyday life, there's a lot of, you know, spontaneous joy and, you know, PT and, you know, concentration even in meetings at work. And it's kind of, you know, sort of, I don't know, I kind of call it like spontaneously meditating during the day. And that's, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, great, you know, and, that, and then it turns and uh, then I'll have some number of weeks of being, I don't having a lot of really negative feelings and um, a lot of anger and judgment and I feel like my concentration shot when I sit and I switch to a lot of noting practice then, which is mostly noting a lot of, you know, unpleasant things, like if it's unpleasant, 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 you know, as they, um, and it just, you know, and then some weeks will pass, usually about three or four weeks, and then I'll start, then it'll, and it just, I don't know, I've been through this cycle now like three or four times over the last, I don't know, five months or something, and it's, I guess I'm wondering, is that, do other people have that, or is that a normal thing, or is this going anywhere, or, mm -hmm, um, yeah. yeah, I guess that's, that's my question. Yeah, that's great to notice those patterns. Um, this is, this is actually typical, and um, what these are are cycles of, they're called cycles of purity and purification. And so um, the mind has stuff that gets um, coming up out of the heart and the mind. And you experience that as being on the surface of your mind as anger or judgment or, you know, the mind is... Uh, but it's basically throwing off stuff that was um, buried or not fully processed. And so you have purification going on. And it's usually can be challenging. And noting practice is good for that. And then... Um, once that has been kind of burned off, to use the usual analogy, then we're in a cycle of purity. And what remains, you know, having, having let go of um, difficulties in the mind, inevitably has to lead to feelings of peace, of openness, of joy, um, because letting go of those things, you know, that's freedom. <laughs> and so you're free of a layer of stuff. And, um, uh, but, you know, when the mind is not fully free, then eventually there will be more stuff. And so um, so there, you're in a period right now where you can see those cycles very clearly. People often have them on retreat, actually. What you're describing is very typical for a long retreat. Like a person doing a six-week or three-month retreat will go through cycles every several days of purity and purification. And the, the, the secret is just to ride it, just to get used to it. It's like, oh, okay, this is it. Um, this is what we're doing and not to be too excited about when it's really great. It's like, oh, I'm going to attain liberation tomorrow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is it. I finally got it. And then, you know, when it goes, you say, oh, I screwed up. What was I doing wrong? How did I lose it? I'm not saying you're doing this, but I'm, um, this can happen. And so then eventually the drama calms down, and you realize, oh, these are just these cycles. This is what's happening. Um, it, so there are periods of practice that are kind of cyclic like that. That's like one scale that it's on. And then there are, of course, larger scales and smaller scales. But um, 
Yeah, it sounds it sounds normal to me. And I guess just to watch, you know, I find myself kind of watching a more carefully my um, interpersonal relations when I'm in the, the challenging part of the cycle because I am, you know, a lot more sort of grumpy and reactive yeah. uh, in that part, and so. Um, I just, I'm noticing that. that yeah. Like, okay, I'm being really grumpy and reactive right now. Um, yeah, it's good to be careful with those in order not to mess up relationships. Mm-hmm. Or it can be a time to cultivate compassion. You know, this is kind of challenging right now. And and to be okay with how your mind is at that time. Yeah. yeah. It's good. It's good overall. Okay. <laughs> when, when practice is doing that, it's, in, it's doing well. Yeah. May I comment on the last two? Sure. <laughs> on your observation, you can relax and learn that it works. <laughs> the great yogis and the great masters were way ahead of us in terms of brain science that when you sit still, your neural pathways calm down, and it works. And for you, I think sometimes what happened to me is intentions and expectations get a little confused that expectations can mask themselves as intentions, and that's a problem. Does that make sense? I don't know if I fully fully follow. I don't know if I do either. Mm -hmm. That we can believe we're sitting with intention when we're actually sitting with expectation. Well, so that makes me think a little bit about um, differentiating between intention and greed, or expectation being greed. Yeah, so there's a whole um, range, you know, there's a whole spectrum, basically, of the mind um, moving, this is a movement toward, basically, the mind has the ability to sense its surroundings and make a movement towards something. And at the one extreme of the spectrum we have uh, tanha, you know, we have the cause of suffering, which is grasping and clinging and craving. And this is, you know, lustful intent, lust for power, sex, uh, alcohol abuse, all the things that people grab at that completely harm them. So that's sort of obvious. But then, you know, we've scale back and there's people will often raise their hand and say, well, what about, you know, wanting to meditate or wanting to do compassionate service in the world? It's fine. You know, there's healthy desires too. And then, you know, what about the fact that I want to eat? (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad you do. I hope you do. And, you know, enlightened people still want to eat and they still want to go to the bathroom. They still have desires that are related to living normally. And then when you get down to the very subtle end of the spectrum, we even think it's good. We have aspiration, we have intention, which is right intention, is the second step of the Eightfold Path. So um, what I see is not so much that we need to worry about the vocabulary a lot, but just check. You know, this this is a spectrum of the mind's ability to move moving toward, in this case, it can also move away. And the practice exploits this tendency of the mind, actually. 
on the good end of the spectrum, on the helpful end. It says if you're going to move, move towards something good. Move away from suffering. So these are movements of the mind, and we train ourselves to have wise intention, the intention to let go, the intention of compassion, the intention of love and kindness. Um, We train ourselves to want helpful things. We train ourselves to meditate every day. What's that? It's a desire, a habit that you build up in your mind. And so... um, and then we train ourselves to want stillness and to want uh, concentration and other things that are good on the path. You won't get concentrated if you don't have some uh, vitaka and vichara. The, those are the first two factors of concentration. You're sticking onto an object and staying with it. You have to want that object and stay with it with some effort. Take some effort to concentrate, not forceful effort. But um, So there's all kinds of ways that the practice uses the mind's ability to move toward things. And so what it does is it takes a natural desire of the mind that's normally just running rampant all over the spectrum, and it hones it into an area that's actually going to serve our practice and eventually is part of the path. And then you know the enlightened mind no longer needs to move, completely fully enlightened, but until then we use it. Use that tendency in wholesome ways. Does that help? Um, yeah, it does. Um, um, uh, just it's all mixed up in semantics, you know. I I can see how um, you know uh, how it, uh, certainly a wholesome desire could be a, a longing for stillness mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And how it can also, and and how we hold that longing. I mean, I think the object could still be the same stillness, but the longing versus kind of a more clinging. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a uh, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. But, the, uh, the test is always whether it's leading toward or away from suffering. Yeah. Exactly. Because if it's not happening, if if that is a clinging kind of thing, I want to be still, I want to be still, and it's not happening, and then a lot of aversion rises, and it's just a tightening knot going on, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, yeah. As opposed to letting go into stillness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's definitely the case. The mind can get attached to anything, Mm -hmm. you know. even very sublime things. We, if we're not totally free, we're prone to get attached to them. Yeah. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go for them, though. <laughs> I've heard people say, oh, I don't want to practice concentration. I've heard they'll just get attached to it. You get happy and then you don't want to ever give it up. It's like, okay, and what are you attached to now? <laughs> Concentration's better <laughs> attachment <laughs> in some ways. I'll be careful because people can, um, if you're not, if you don't work with a teacher or do it carefully, you can get into trouble with concentration because the mind gets very powerful. Um, but uh, it's not a good excuse not to start <laughs> developing samadhi. We're already attached, <laughs> so choose good things. through the process of sitting and allowing uh, myself in the group energy to uh, go into a meditative state. 
notice the contrast seems to be helpful between maybe a structure opposed to just uh, the opposite, letting go and just surrendering to watching the breath and letting the simplicity you know, of that. And that seems to, uh, seems to allow me more, um, <clears throat> more effectiveness in just dropping into a spontaneous state. Yeah. And that's, uh, and then that brought to mind just how about uh, there's safety and power and numbers you know, when they come together like this. It, uh, it all is an acceleration of the process and more spontaneity. Uh, you know, provided we have this kind of a free environment. And then I was contrasting that with uh, how it seems to help me to just observe how in the outer world we have all, all these empires seeking uh, maybe conquest and military might. And then by contrast, we're sitting here and that we are uh, the uh, suggestion of uh, letting go of our weapons of offense and defense. I've, I've heard that as a part of meditation and uh, expanding consciousness practice. Uh, I find that very freeing too, just to, uh, just to notice that those two ends of the opposite ends of the spectrum. And that seems to be freeing. Yeah, thank you. So the um, you've felt into the kind of the effect of sitting in a group of people with um, similar good intention in a way, and that um, that's very powerful and real. Actually, it's not an accident that people meditate in groups and that we come together like this in spaces like this. It does have an actual, it does have a real effect on our system. And this um, this sense of being able to let go into uh, not having to do and create and make uh, can be very, very freeing. And many people discover that in, in a sangha setting like this. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. Is this the, that uh, metaphor of um, uh, <clears throat> the sci-fi Star Wars movie, that metaphor of uh, hyperdrive going into white speed? Warp drive? Uh, hyperdrive. Oh, hyperdrive. Oh, the Star Wars, yes. I was, I was just thinking about how that's so analogous to this surrendering, slipping into that.
How do you see the balance between attention and intention? When Ajahn Chah used to use a, an analogy of sitting in a quiet room in the one seat and simply waiting for visitors to come and knowing them, and by occupying the one seat, there's no room for them to stay, so they move on. So it's, it's an intention without really, I mean, it, it's an attention uh, practice without really strong intention that, or expectation that anything is going to happen. You're there paying attention. So these are you know, two sides of it. So how do you see the balance between those? I see them as different facets of the mind, and we could choose to emphasize one or the other, essentially, is that they're an important component of, they're both important components of uh, mental experience. They're part of, um, actually both part of what's called name, in name and form, attention and intention. And they, um, they're actually two places where, how shall I say, um, they're kind of the two components that are what allow us to change our karma, essentially, is that, you know, there's all kinds of stuff as part of experience, you know, there's feeling tone and perception and attention and intention and contact and uh, various other things. And if you were to say, well, which one of those uh, can we really, um, you know, where's like the, the levers? And attention and intention are, the, are two of them that are very important. So, um, attention brings the mind up to the present moment. It's part of you know, mindfulness is related. And then intention points it. So it's like a vector, you know, it's got a magnitude and a direction. Attention is the magnitude, intention is the direction. It creates the vector of the mind, which is hopefully pointed down the path. Does that help? Yeah. 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 I just wanted to um, add to that, um, that, so when you're talking about Ajahn Chah, you know, he said about having visitors, and so that is, in a way, like, just a passive, it's not, it's not, I would say, not just a passive attention, it's also intention to pay attention to a mind for one thing, and it's also an intention to be non-judgmental. Yeah, I think they're both there, and then it's kind of which one is in the fore, foreground or background. Yeah. hesitate to speak too much, but I can't help myself. If one, one delightful aspect of the Buddhist path is that Americans have been accultured since the first ship left Europe to be doers, doers, doers. We're actors, actors, actors. And what's beautiful about the Buddhist practice is it teaches us how to properly not act. Mm. 
Have you found this useful in your practice? Pardon me? Have you found this, yeah? Yeah. I'm much better at making better decisions about when to act and when not to act, because both have equal effect. Acting and not acting have equal effect? Acting and acting can both have dynamic or neutral ramifications. Ah, I see, yes. Yes, I see. So not we tend to act all the time. Yes. Instead of making a decision to refraining from acting. Yeah. You remind me of this um, quote. About the goal. This is peaceful. This is sublime, namely, the calming of all constructions, the letting go of all supports, the extinguishing of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. So, you don't need to understand all those technical terms, but this practice points toward letting go of constructing our experience. Essentially, at the macroscopic level, we're doing, 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 like driving our car and doing our job and running around maintaining our relationships. And then that's all supported at the very, very microscopic level of the mind continually uh, reaching out and contacting the world, wanting that stimulus. And so we train ourselves to renounce the simpler life at this level, and we simplify in the mind, developing stillness, mindfulness, concentration. And then eventually when we see that alone isn't enough, the concentration isn't enough, we have to see how the mind is putting together its own experience so that we can stop putting it together in ways that bring suffering. And the way to be sure that you've done that is to stop putting it together at all least once. And then you can hopefully go all the way. Yeah, Trevor, last one. Sometimes I ask questions about, about your practice. Um, kind of what has it taken for you to uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. What did you say? Oh, I also can't quite hear you. What, what, it, what it has taken for you to... And I lost, I lost the topic. Mm. You said it just before. To, to see how the mind works at a very deep level. Um, yeah, to let it stop. Just to let it stop. Well... Well, not stop, but to... It's a good question. No, I, yeah. Yeah, let me... Um, I think it takes contacting 
that very deep longing in the middle of the heart. The part that really wants to be free. And there's different ways to contact that. Um, I think without that very intense um, personal sense of the possibility of freedom, uh, we won't uh, we won't be able to either put out the effort or let go of what needs to be let go of or see what needs to be seen in a sense. So enter is always to turn back toward the heart and find what's there. In the end, it's, um, it's the same path for everyone and it's a different path for everyone. So those are both true and um, I would say that the paths are just similar enough that we can help each other and just distinct enough that liberation is individual. But uh, we're all, I assume, we're all still on the path in this room. I certainly am. So it's something we all do together. But I, yeah. Yeah. I uh, was contemplating, I think, uh, <clears throat> on the reason I, <clears throat> I found that metaphor <clears throat> is my Star Wars and light speed. I forgot to being helpful because uh, I think it uh, it brings in that dimension of uh, creative imagination, you know, like, uh, which adds an element of joy and fun to the process. And uh, I think that's I think that's something that. In my experience, when I accelerate the process, normally I might feel kind of blocked, like I'm just going through the motions, or or stuck a little bit, doing my conditioning and the spirit of the world outside. And so many of those factors, you know, and uh, being able to ponder some of those other imaginative uh, uh, insights uh, that seems to really be helpful. Mm. Joy is an essential component of the path, actually. And um, the there's one teacher who says that the he's looked very deeply at the early suttas, the ones that are maybe the closest to what the Buddha said. And he says that um, you can see that the Buddha maybe originally formulated his teachings in terms of kind of insight or wisdom type categories, and then later there came a formulation that was based on increasingly refined levels of happiness, and that he kind of reformulated his teachings around that. And um, so it's it's interesting that he could use different lenses. There isn't just one lens we can put on the teachings, and the happiness lens is one of them. Interesting. All right, so that's enough for this evening, but um, thank you all for your practice and be well.